Well, we're going to continue our series in 1 Corinthians, now that you've missed your chance to stand up. Um, I'm going to see, uh, I'm going to test you really quickly to see if you guys have a, a mind that can maybe group some names in a list and tell me what ma- binds those names together on the same list. Lance Armstrong, Robbie Zacharias, Pete Rose, Tanya Harding, Carl Lentz, Mark McGuire, Bill Hybels. Can anybody tell me what the common theme is of those names? Yeah, that's better than the first service. The first service said steroids. No. (laughs) That's right. They broke the rules. They cheated. They fell in moral failure. They were disqualified. You know, it doesn't take much. It only takes one mistake, one lapse of judgment, one bad decision, and you find yourself disqualified. And all of your reputation, all of your life's work can be down the drain. God wants us not to fail. Paul is writing, so we do not fail. So we do not have disqualification. See, but whether it's pastors or just ordinary folks, I'm sure you saw on that list there were names that you thought would never fall, would never make a mistake. They... They should be above that, right? They're men of God. How could they fall? Well, just look at King David. Was there a man who loved God more than King David in this room? I don't think so. But in a moment, when he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, thinking the wrong thoughts, he ended up in bed with the wrong woman, and he failed miserably. And if you think you can't, uh, come up and meet with me afterwards because I have some new information for you. That's not true. It can happen to any of us. See, when someone's disqualified, they're sidelined. They're taken out of ministry. They're taken out of service for our Jesus. See, disqualification for a Christian doesn't mean loss of your salvation. We're going to touch on that later. But you're going to be out of the ability to serve God and have an impact for God. And Paul would spare us that. So let's just open our Bibles and get rolling. Um, Turn to verse 24 of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Let's follow along together. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way, not as without aim. I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, 
With most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Father, if I say nothing else today, I know that what I just said was truth. It's rock solid. It's life-changing. It's your very words. So Father, may we hear them and apply them. Would you turn us into winners instead of haphazard runners or just plain losers. Do not let us fall into the temptations of your blessed people and end up disqualified for the crown. Father, I think all of us want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We all want to receive the crown of righteousness, but I think your word is clear, not everybody will. Some will be still make it to heaven, but only by fire and smoke. So, Father, help us to be committed to running a race that pleases you, that has the maximum impact for Jesus Christ and winning people to your salvation. And, Father, help us to be winners in this race of the Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well... Paul, in our passage today, um, will continue his teaching on Christian liberties and our need to either put them aside or control them. In chapter 8, he talked about how we control them with fellow believers, that love should be the lid, as Larry said, on our liberty. Uh, in chapter 9, he began by saying that we should be willing to voluntarily set aside all of our liberties like Jesus did for us and for the sake of the lost and for the gospel. But now he's gonna talk to us about what our liberties can do to us. And he uses Old Testament stories and he talks about three things. The mindset of a winner. He talks about the second, what are the illustrations of the dangers to our race? And third, what are God's precious promises for us to finish the race? So let's jump into the characteristics of a winner. You know, Paul begins by likening the Christian life to an athletic event, to a race. A race can, that can be won or it can be lost. It's a race as I, as a shepherd of Valley Bible Church, want to see each of us win. I want to see the church win for your sake, for the gospel's sake, for Christ's sake. We want to be winners, don't we? 
I hope so. Well, Paul uses this illustration because the Isthmian Games happened about 10 miles away from Corinth. They were games very much like the Greek Olympics, but they happened every other year. But they had rigorous requirements to be a contestant, and they were clearly what Paul wants to refer to about what an athlete must do to run in this race. Um, we have to understand in the Christian life, not everybody wins. Do you always wake up in the morning feeling like a winner? I know I don't. How about at the end of your day? Wow, whoo, I did a great job today. I won. See, we are not all winning. Paul says there's ingredients that you must have in your mind and your heart if you want to be a winner. You can't fall into the winner's circle. Nobody is just gonna fall into the winner's circle, sitting in their easy chair, watching news or the sports. You won't win. You need some ingredients in your life. Well, 40 years ago, our pastor... Phil uh, used an alliteration to describe this passage that I looked at and I said, man, I can't improve on that. So I'm gonna shamelessly borrow it, stick it here, but I'm not gonna preach his message. Um, But I will use it to help us understand what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about four things that we need to have as our mindset. We need to have as things that we put as part of our life if we're ever going to win. The first thing is determination. They all start with the letter letter D, so hopefully that helps you. The first thing, because that's his skill, not mine. Uh, Letter D is determination. Two, discipline. Everybody loves discipline, don't they? Three, direction. And four, the fear, the knowledge that you can always be disqualified. You're a heartbeat away from disqualification if we're not careful. Those four things Paul says we need. So let's just rip through them here. The first one is determination or drive. Paul says, do you know that all run, but only one receives the prize? Run that you may win. I know some of you around here really don't care about winning very much. When you play games, you play to have fun. You don't have a competitive bone in your body. You could care less if you keep score. That's not me. When I play a game, I want to win. When I played Candyland at seven, I wanted to win. And when my sister went over that rainbow bridge first, I was upset. Well, I shouldn't be so upset, and I shouldn't play with that much determination with my own children, but hey, I want to win. It's not fun for me to play a game when no one's keeping score. Hey, how'd we do? I don't know. I, I like that evaluation in life. But Paul says... It takes determination to win. You can't just fall into win. They played to win. Michael Jordan, do you think he played to win? How about Kobe Bryant? Did he play to win? How about a man that people don't remember very much, but they should? A short guy that smoked a cigar named Winston Churchill. His determination ignited a nation to stand against an oppressive nation that that no one else was standing against. They had no reason winning. But he says, I refuse to be defeated. And he inspired a nation to be refusing to be defeated. I think he was a catalyst that let the allies even win that victory. Without Winston, I don't think we would have won. God gave this 
globe someone that would give us the confidence to win. It was a gift. But do we have that same in the Christian life? Because Paul said, hey, I'm running to win the gold for Jesus. I'm not here to take a stroll and pick flowers. I'm just not on a nature hike. I'm driven. I have a made-up mind. I've already convinced myself I'm not giving in. So how much victory do you want today? Because Jesus says you're going to have as much victory as you want. But do you really want it? Are you determined to win? How about winning takes discipline? Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. See, we know, and Paul knew, no one wins any of these contests if they haven't trained, if they haven't subjected themselves to discipline and the rigors of training, of diet, of sleep, of exercise. I mean, you might be the most naturally born athlete in the planet, but if you have never studied how to be better at a sport, you will never be the best at that sport. You need to be trained. You might be very athletic, good reflexes, great eye-hand coordination, but you need to learn the game. Paul's saying well, you've got to be trained. You've got to subject your body to discipline. See, a real athlete doesn't just control how he exercises. He controls what he eats, when he gets up, when he goes to bed. Do we like those things? We're not really fondly uh, fans of discipline, are we? Why do most people like me still have too much weight on? It's not necessarily because I eat too much, but I don't do what I need to to be disciplined on what I eat, when I eat, and how I exercise, right? It's not like there's some formula in life that no one's figured out yet how to lose weight. It's I'm not disciplined enough. If you look at me, you can just tell that there's an area in my life that needs more discipline. But all of us need discipline in the Christian life. You're not going to succeed unless you have discipline to learn what you need to learn to apply it to your Christian life. Well, Paul knew that if we don't apply ourselves to discipline, we're going to be half-hearted, ill-prepared, out of shape to witness for Jesus, to reach the lost, to even have enough strength and stamina to do it. We're going to tell ourselves, hey, we need more rest is what I need. He says, don't do it. Let go of anything that gets in the way of being ready and available. Discipline your body. He wanted a crown. Paul wanted to get the crown. You know, sometimes I think we... I don't know what the word is, but we look down on people that really want to achieve. Paul was not ashamed to say, I'm going for a crown. Are you going for a crown? Paul says at the end of his life, thankfully, I finished the course. I've kept the faith. There is laid up for me, therefore, the crown of righteousness. I can hardly wait when Jesus puts it on my head. Are you looking forward to that? You have to be in the game. You have to be determined. You have to be disciplined. Otherwise, you won't win. Well, how about direction? See, I know a lot of fast people, but if you're not running the right direction, it doesn't really matter, does it? 
Ever heard of the guy at Ronway, Corrigan? He, got, he picked up the ball on an interception and ran the opposite way as fast as you could. Nobody could catch him, not even his own teammates. And he scored a touchdown for the other team. We don't want to do that. In fact, I, I had an analogy, and sometimes I've ever, even used it. You're driving along, you're not really sure where you are or when you're going to get to where you're going, and they say, how are we doing? He says, I don't know, but we're making really good time. We shouldn't just be making good time in the Christian life. We're not here just to go fast for Jesus. We're trying to go the right direction. Paul said, I have my eyes fixed on Christ, on the gospel, on reaching the lost, and I'm running fast towards that goal. Just like any hiker will tell you, you don't follow a trail by looking at tree to tree to tree. You look at a distant mountain. You put it in your view. You say, if I get closer to that, I'm going the direction I want to go. Paul said, I'm looking at Jesus. Who are you looking at? Who are you looking at in your race? The gurus on Wall Street? The pundits on TikTok? who know everything about everything? Are you looking to Jesus and the word of God? That's our guide, that's our compass, that's our direction, and children of God, you gotta know, we are a privileged people because we of all people have been given young, old, weak, strong, direction and purpose in life. This world does not have direction and purpose. Most, you most hear it most, most teenagers who commit suicide say there's just no purpose in life. I don't know which way to go. There's nothing matters anyway. We want to tell them, no, there's something that desperately matters to know Christ and the salvation in him. We need to move on. I, just, I love this stuff, but I want us to set our eyes on Jesus and on his word, not on me, not on any other pastor. This is our guide. This is our guide. Well, next, he said that I'm not gonna throw punches willy-nilly. I think there's two points to be made in there quickly. One, he says, look, I'm not out here just sweating for Jesus. When I punch something, I want it to hit and connect. I'm not just swinging at the air just to look like I'm a really good boxer. Put me in the ring and I get knocked out. But I look good. That's not him. He's not trying to sweat for Jesus. But the other thing he says, but if I do swing and you're in, even in the ring, I'm trying not to miss because when I miss, I set myself up for a counterpunch. Right here. What am I gonna block it with? Okay, when you throw a bad punch, you're gonna get hit. And what he's telling us is, look, I'm targeting my punches in life. I'm marshalling my energy. I'm not wasting my time. I'm hitting exactly what I want to hit, when I want to hit it, and I'm not just out here being busy for God. We ought to be careful in church not to just have so many functions and things that don't promote Christ or preach the gospel because we're not here to be busy for God. We're here to promote his kingdom and Christ and his salvation to a lost world. That's what we're here for. Well, moving on, the fourth characteristic of a winner is simply the fear of disqualification. He says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You know, this word dis discipline his body is really is to pummel, to pound, to buffet, to beat, 
Now, when you hear the word buffet, don't translate it later, buffet. It's the same spelling, just don't buffet your body, okay? We want to buffet our body. And what's Paul saying? It's a Greek word that's powerful, and it really means to, to hit under the eye, to give a black eye to. Paul's saying, hey, if I must, I'm going to pound myself into submission to make sure my body is my slave and not my master. Because Paul knew that his number one enemy were not the Romans, were not the Jews. It was not... The, some Christians doing stupid things. His biggest enemy was his own self, his own body. You take your biggest enemy wherever you go, and it's you. And your body wants to be in charge, by the way. It wants pleasure. It wants comfort. It wants lots of things. But Paul says we need to beat our body into submission and make sure it's our slave and not our master. See, I think many Christians are slaves to their bodies. Their bodies tell their minds what to do, when to eat, when to exercise, when to work at church, when not, rather than it's the other way around. You will do what I say. Paul says, make sure you put yourself in charge. Otherwise, you will be disqualified. See, there's rules in this life. Did you know that? There are rules in life, and you have to follow them. In the Christian life, Paul says, look, I could be disqualified because I get off track. I'm picking daisies. I could be disqualified because I'm not even trained right. Are you taking the time to be trained right so that you can work in the actual field that God wants you to work in, which is rescuing people from sin through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? A lot of people, I hear it all the time. Well, I can't witness. I don't, I don't know very many Bible verses. Why not? This is about being prepared for the race. If you're not, if you don't know the plan of the Romans road, know something. John 3, 16, pick several, Romans 6, Romans 3, what are you going to pick? How can you explain to the lost in God's words what's wrong? You need to be prepared. Paul's saying if you're not prepared, you're going to get disqualified. You're not following the rules. Well, I just want to move on because Paul wants to remind us disqualification is not lack of salvation. I mean, Moses was disqualified from going into the promised land, correct? One mistake. He hit a rock instead of spoke to the rock. But what do we see on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses. Yeah, he made it to heaven. He's with Jesus. But he didn't make it to the promised land. This disqualification is an earthly bound thing. You're going to disqualify yourself on God's plan to reach this world. Don't do that. Paul's going to tell you, you need all four of these things to win. But he's also going to warn you that we must remember that uh, Christian liberty can be your downfall and blessings can be your downfall. He's going to use an illustration of the people of Israel marching from Egypt to the promised land where two million might have started, only two crossed the finish line. Those aren't very good odds, are they? Might worry you if you're saying, well, how am I going to make it? See, God had set them all free. And it says here that God had blessed them all. So let's look at the blessings that all of these Israelites received. The liberties and the privileges and the assets they got from God. Every one of them. 
says the first one was liberation from Egypt when he tells them they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The cloud is simply the reference to the Shekinah glory that was in the presence of the Israelite camp. It was where God was. It was Christ in the cloud. And it was also the pillar of fire by night. That was evidence of God's presence with them in camp. But the other thing was the sea. What's the sea? Well, the sea is when they passed through the Red Sea. That was the actual ultimate defeat of their oppressor, Egypt. God freed them from Egypt. Egypt tried to come back and take them back. And God said, that's not going to happen. In fact, the cloud came back behind the Israelite camp and protected the Israelites from the army of the Egypts. And then when the Red Sea, they opened up, they walked through on dry ground. They got through the other side. The cloud moved. In came Egypt. The sea fell in on them, and the whole Egyptian army was gone. God used this to deliver them miraculously by divine sources. Israelites were divinely delivered and had divine presence and protection. How about Christians today? Have you been delivered? I've been delivered from the wrath of God, from sin, from death, from hell. What have you been delivered from, Christian? The same things. All Christians have been delivered from the same thing. The wrath of God, from sin, from death, and hell. Why? Because we're all blessed, just like the Israelites were blessed. They all been divinely delivered, and they all had protection from God. Because we have the same protection in Christ, don't we? Won't Christ take care of us? Doesn't Christ protect us, guard us, guide us? Does his word guide us? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Where do we get guidance? Right here. Well, what he says here is that even so, they fell. They were disqualified. The second blessing, so being being divinely delivered, having salvation alone does not mean you won't blow it in the Christian life. The second blessing is they were all baptized in the Moses and the cloud and the sea. And we know Moses didn't baptize all two million of them in some water basin. What he's talking about here, the Bible talks about baptism. They really mean identified with. So the people of Israel were identified with Moses and his leadership and his representation to God. And us, what have we been done? We have all been baptized into Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans, uh, what is it? 6, 3, Galatians 3, 27. All tell us we were baptized into Christ. We now have a new identity. We're identified with Christ. When God sees us, he sees us through Jesus. We are in Christ. That's why we have his righteousness. Well, what happens? This man, Moses, the Israelites were all identified in him, and we've all been identified in Christ. Does that, did that save them from being disqualified? The fact that God now sees us in Christ, does that keep us from blowing it in the Christian life? No. They, the Israelites had access to God through Moses. We have access to God through Christ. That's what Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, right? We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access. We have the same privileges as Israel. We can fail too. He says the third blessing 
as they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Paul's not talking about invisible food. He's talking about the manna that came from heaven, the quail that came from heaven, the water that came out of the rock. Where did that come from? From a divine source. God, who is spirit, delivered to his people real things by the power of the spirit. These are spiritual food. Manna was real food. Quails were real quail. Got stuck in their teeth. That's what we read. Of course, they were judged while the the quail was stuck in their teeth, but we're not going there. See, Paul tells us that the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ. And he's not talking about some boulder rolling around the desert, and that's, that's Christ. No. Christ's presence went with Israel. Does Christ's presence go with Christians? Yes. Did that spare them from failing? No. Why? They were not careful. And it says in verse 5, they weren't careful in 6. They craved other things. So we're going to go now, and we're going to look at what Paul says what are the dangers that face us today and he says according to verse 5 that these are 6 that these things are written for examples for us that we would not crave evil things as they craved now I skipped verse 5 and I don't mean to but we have little time so I'm going to try to get where we're going to God is not telling us these stories because they're interesting. God recorded them for a purpose. Did he have to tell us about all the details of the journey of 40 years while they wandered around? Was that important for us in one sense? No. But he says it is important because these things are written as examples of what not to do in the Christian life. This is not some funny Old Testament story or some unique bunch of tales These are things that God wants us to pay attention to all of Scripture, Old Testament and New. And this part of Scripture was written for our example. Later we're going to read that that's our warning. God's written these things to warn us and give us examples. And what for and why? Because we would not crave evil things as they also craved. What do you crave? Is it God? Or is it something other than God? See, these people had everything. They had a heavenly menu. They had protection. God wiped out their enemies. They were on easy street, but they were not satisfied. They wanted more. They craved things that weren't good for them. They weren't satisfied with what God was giving them. They wanted more. Do we ever want more from God? Paul's telling us, be careful. Whenever you start lusting for more, wanting more than God is providing you, you're in danger of being disqualified. You won't make it to the end of the race. And so he gives us four examples of that lusting for more. And the first one was idolatry. He says, don't become idolaters as some of them were in verse seven. You know, the Israelites were hardly out of Egypt. When they stopped in camp, Moses at the top of the hill, 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the Ten Commandments, put in a stone by the finger of God himself. Before he got back, the Israelites said, you know, I don't know what happened to this Moses dude, but he's been up there a long time. I don't know if he's ever coming back. So what I'm going to do here is 
I want a tangible representation of a God, this invisible God we have that he's meeting with. Eh, it's no good. And so they had to make a golden calf and they worshiped that. Moses come down the hill, hears the partying in the camp and wondering, what kind of music is this? And by the way, it says they got up to eat and drink and to have revelry. That's really, those are euphemisms for just excess of drinking and sexual immorality. They were off, way off base. So he comes down. Moses comes down the hill and says, what's going on? And Aaron says, well, the people made me do it. I know we've never blamed anybody else for our sin. The people made me do it. And what is that? Well, I threw this gold in the fire, and guess what? Out came a golden calf. That's the story. That's, that's actually what Aaron said. I threw in the gold, out came a golden calf. Moses knew that wasn't right. I mean, no parent would believe that story. So what happens? He ground up the idol into powder. He put it in the water, had all of Israel drink it. And after that, God killed 3,000 people because of their idolatry. Paul's warning us, if you want something, if you want something bad enough that it replaces God, it becomes idolatry. God says in, in Colossians 3.5 that greed is equal to idolatry. Did you know that? Are you greedy for anything? You want more of anything like success or money or property or land or vacations or family or free time? When any of those things get on a pedestal above God, that's idolatry. And God says don't do that. In fact, there's judgment. In fact, he kills people for doing that. I wonder how many people would be dead today if God killed greedy people. The problem is we allow it in our own life and don't even know it. We put things on the pedestal that only God should be on. That is idolatry and God says don't do that. Do not crave for things. You will be disqualified. Immorality, don't be immoral. You're not familiar with this story but Balaam tried to curse God's people. God wouldn't let him. Instead, he says, I know how to take these people down to King Balak. He says, corrupt them. And so he sent some Midianite women into the camp wearing negligees and oasis number five. I don't know what they wore. But they went in the camp and they seduced the men and they fell. They slept with the women. They committed adultery. God was so angry that 23,000 of them fell in even a single day. Do you think God cares about sin? Did you know that the God that you serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Amen. That's a plus, by the way. That's not just a judgment thing. That's a plus. He never changes. But the point is that this same God does not like sin, even in a Christian's life. And lust, by the way, if you think you're above it, beware. I don't think you can get old enough to get away from lust. And if you think you can stand, just look around at some examples from Scripture and see if you're better than King David, because he couldn't stand. Be careful. We're not immune. Would you pray for us, by the way, please? Pray for me. Pray for the other pastors, Todd and Larry. Pray for our elders. Pray for our leaders in this church that we would not fall into immorality. It is a disqualifier. It takes down the church of God. We don't want to do that.
We're supposed to make no provision for the flesh and flee immorality. Are you doing that? Are you making any provision for the flesh in your life? Stop it. Don't do that. Don't test the Lord. It says the people tested God. They were impatient with their journey. They didn't like their food. They were just, meh, meh. They tested God. And I think a test of God is more like two. They got close to sin. Anybody ever gets close to sin but is feeling proud of themselves because they didn't cross the line? There's sin. I didn't cross the line, Lord. I thought, I, I got within a millimeter, but I didn't cross the line. We should be running the other way, people. We're not trying to get close to the line. When we get close to the line, we test God. That's what these people did. They tested God. And God says, you know what? You're using your liberties as a way to sin. I'm not gonna put up with that. And they said that they were destroyed by serpents when they tested God. They used their freedoms wrong. Paul's telling these Corinthians, they were doing the same thing. There were, there were people, right? we've read about them, in the immorality in the Corinthian church, right? They were not using their liberties correctly. And Paul says in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be, right? We should flee sin. But every blessing that Israel had was because of grace. So don't think that grace in your life will, will immune you from God's judgment on sin in your life. He will discipline you. Count on it. If you test him, he will discipline you. And you could be disqualified for the race. And I would just ask you, child of God, is anybody in here already over the line that you know God wants you to be within? You're testing God right now. You're on borrowed time. The hammer will fall. He used as an example. Don't think that your position of your blessing of being a Christian, being in Christ, will prevent you from having a disqualifying blow put in your life. Get back to where God wants you to be within his limits. Well, last is grumbling and complaining, and I don't want to take much time here because I know nobody in here ever does that. And I asked the same question in the first service. I said, if anybody on here says, don't grumble, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. If God destroyed every grumbler in this room, how many would people would be left this morning? I wouldn't be left. I don't know how many of you would, I can't get through many days without grumbling. I don't know why. Just driving makes me do it. I don't want to. I want to be better. But the point here is he was saying, when we grumble against God, we're really, do you know what you're doing when you grumble? You're taking on God's sovereign will for your life. God, you're not taking very good care of me right now. You're not being faithful to me. You're not doing what I need. You're questioning his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, his omniscience and omnipotence in your life. It's a lack of trust because you're saying, God, your way stinks. My way is better. I don't think we want to be saying that to God. God says when he does that, the destroyer comes into life. We don't want a destroyer in our life, right? 
We don't want to demonstrate to a watching world that we're discontent with our wonderful God. When we are discontent, we give bad advertising to our Lord Jesus. We have to say, Lord, you're taking good care of me. I don't know what's going on in this trial, but I trust you. I trust you. Well, we get to, got to get to God's wonderful promise. I know I'm going to get a spanking later, but I'll just go through. Um, in verses 11 and 13, he shares his messages, a principle, a caution, and a promise. The principle is this. These things were written for our warning. So listen to me well. I'm trying to warn you by the word of God and the authority in that word. God is saying these things to warn you that you're not disqualified. The second thing it says in verse 12, he says his caution against overconfidence. I think pride and overconfidence are the two biggest factors that will take down any Christian. Thinking I've mastered this trial, I've mastered this temptation, this will not take me down anymore don't think you've got it made you'll never be old enough to flee lust you'll never be smart enough to outthink the devil do not get overconfident rely on him when you think you might stand it's an evidence it's an evidence that what might be a good strength for you is now going to be a weakness because you've overestimated it do not do that but lastly in verse 13 Paul gives us really three promises in one He says, I know you're scared because only two out of two million made it across the finish line. How do I know I can make it? Can you make it? Are you tired of losing? Are you tired of not getting across the finish line? God says, I got some promises for you, child of God. And the first one is this. No temptation has overtaken you but is common to man. God has promised you, listen to this, God has promised you that there will not be one trial or temptation in your life that is not common and unique to the human experience. You're not going to get angelic tests. You're not going to get Superman tests. You're going to get normal human tests. He promises you're not going to get one that's out of this world. Well, I think we have to understand something, and I want to make sure you understand. When God says temptation in, in scripture on these verses. He really means a category that's either, it's, not, it's kind of a neutral moral term. It means either a temptation to sin or a trial or test of character of our life. God never will tempt you to sin, ever. He can't be tempted and will not tempt you. That's what the word of God says. But Satan will definitely try to tempt you and get you to trip up. The same word is used in both cases. But God is saying that none of these will be out of the superhuman size. Well, what's the next thing he says? He says, the third part in verse 13c. To me, people, this is gold. Take this with you this week. Gold, gold. But with the temptation, everybody's gonna get one. It's not going to be unusual. You might think, I got the worst one. You know, it's not true. Everybody has trials. Everybody has temptations. God says they won't be unusual for you. But with the temptation, 
God will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. We got a promise from God. He'll give you one of two answers. One, he'll give you escape, a get-out-of-jail-free card. When that cancer diagnosis comes, he cures it. He takes it away. When the relationship is damaged, he heals it. When the job is lost, he provides one. But the second thing he says he promises is when that does not happen, I will give you the grace and the strength and the divine power to get through the test. You will not go in naked to any test, ever. There's not a test in your life right now. You might think I'm under a terrible trial. Jesus is in it with you. You are not going through this alone. So like the song we sing, there's another in the fire and he's carrying most of the weight. As we heard about, he's not going to let it. It's going to be uh, tailored to your strength, right? These trials are tailored to your strength. It's not going to let more than you can handle be put upon you. That's a powerful thing. But that's the reason, I think, for that is Jesus is carrying most of the weight. He only lets on you what he wants to let on you, and it's by divine choice. See, Paul had this experience in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, I prayed to God three times. Now, you think the apostle Paul would get his prayers answers for miracles, right? He was healing other people, wasn't he? Wasn't the apostle Paul healing other people? Why didn't he point his fingers at his own eyes and heal himself? He called to God, and he says, God, I want to be healed three times. And God finally gave him the answer, stop asking. I don't want to hear that question anymore. Paul, this is going to be with you, but my grace will be sufficient for you. And I think sometimes in our lives we think God has abandoned us when the trial is not removed. False. He's more close to you now because he's in the trial with you. He's carrying the weight of the trial. He doesn't want you to give up. He doesn't want you to quit. He says, look, trust me. Wait, 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 wait. Trust me. I've got you, and you will get through this trial. What a, the world doesn't have this promise. When it goes through trials, it doesn't have this promise. We, children of God, have this promise. God will never leave us or forsake us. He will be with us even in the trial, and it's comforting to know that when your trial seems too heavy, trust in him who's carrying the weight. He will get you through. I've seen people do this. I know a lot of us have stories of people. My mom, I can't believe it. She had cancer for the last nine months of her life and was nauseated every day, wanted to throw up 24 hours a day. But she had this smile on her face that you would never know. And I, I, I looked at that and I, I didn't really appreciate it until one day I got sick and I had nausea every day for two weeks. And I said, how does she do this for nine months and smile? the grace of God. She didn't worry about, well, that's the way it is. God's got me. I'll get through. Let's go. That's what you can do today, child of God. He wants you to win. He wants you to be victorious. Thanks be to God who gives you the victory. He wants you to win. Well, let me close. Father, I just know that there's people in here that are tired of losing. You want to win but you haven't put in the time or the effort to train yourself. Or there's people that are running too close to sin. 
They might get disqualified. They're running too close to the wanting things of this world. They're grumbling about what God hasn't given them instead of reveling in what God has given them. And I would just say to you, church, God has a promise for you. And God has a goal for you. He wants you to win. He wants to be able, I think he has a storeroom of crowns that he wants to give to each one of us if we'll just put in the work and do what he's calling us to do. What type of a powerful place would this be if everyone was running to win? I can't even imagine. I'd, I'd probably get exhausted trying to keep up with all of you. But it would, what a motivator. Have you ever run in a race and you're trying to get somebody to keep up with you? And it's tiring trying to bring this dead weight along? When you're running in a race, when people are running with you and are energized and having fun, it's easier to keep up. It's easier to run the race. God wants us all to run well. But the second thing is, I think we have to say no to sin. You gotta let go of idolatry. You gotta let go of immorality. You gotta let it go of grumbling. And you can't test God. You can't question his sovereign will in your life. All these things, Paul said, will disqualify you. I want us to succeed. I want us to win. I wish I could take time after the service and say, anybody that's tired of losing, please come forward. We want to pray with you. In fact, I'll be up here. If you're tired of losing and you want me to pray with you, you come up here. I'll pray with you. And elders, would you come up too? Because I want to win this race. I don't know about you. This was so convicting to me. I told the pastor this before. I don't want to weep. But I know at times I haven't been running to win. I've been busy, but I've not been running to win. That's not been my major goal, to make sure that everything I did was to the one purpose of reaching others for Christ. I want to get the crown. I hope you do too. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word that teaches us that just having blessings in our life will not let us cruise to the finish line in victory. We need to put in the work. We need to be dedicated and devoted to our Savior. We need to train our minds and our hearts in the Word of God. We need to pray on our knees, dependent on the Holy Spirit's power for this race. This race demands power, and you've promised divine power to get through every trial we're ever in, whether it's a temptation or just a test. You've promised sufficient power no one will we ever, ever be able to say, I didn't have enough power at my disposal to conquer that trial. You've promised it, and you are faithful. You're reliable. You never lie. You never fail. We thank you for it. Thank you for this time, and Father. With anybody that you've talked to this morning about winning and about leaving sin, would you have them come forward? In Jesus' name, amen.